Hi, everyone. It's Kim Skorupski in the Faculty Factory. Just a big thank you for being a part of this vibrant international community where we all share our tools to build academic leaders. Did you know that the Faculty Factory podcast for almost five years now, dropping episodes every Friday, has had almost 70,000 downloads and YouTube listeners from 84 countries? We're waiting to learn from you. Would you please shoot me an email so that we can record your episode? Or maybe you'd like to sponsor someone else to be on the podcast? Our email address is facultyfactorykim at gmail. The address at Hopkins here is kskarupski. That's K-S-K-A-R-U-P-S-K-I at J-H-M-I dot E-D-U. And yes, all the episodes on the Faculty Factory podcast are also on our YouTube channel. We have a YouTube channel and the YouTube channel is sorted into buckets for your easy viewing. Let me look at these buckets and tell you what they are. Discussions with deans, communication, general faculty development podcasts and interviews, promotion and tenure, reunion episodes from great speakers from the past and guests from the past, the habits and hacks from Hopkins. We recorded that during COVID when we were all kind of hunkered down, self-awareness and self-management, leadership, networking, research and scholarship, and mentoring and coaching. So again, that's on the YouTube channel. Then did you also know that the facultyfactory.org website has drawn almost 37,000 visits from users in 122 countries? If you go to facultyfactory.org, we've put together a lot of resources for everyone to share. Not only will you see the podcast, but under resources, we have coaching resources, we have our eBooks, we have all the institutions. Yes, if you're listening from any other institution, any school of medicine in North America, your institution is listed there under resources with a link to your Office of Faculty Development or Faculty Affairs. If we have the wrong address, give us an update, but that's a really neat way of seeing all the schools in North America. We have related affiliate organizations, so the Association of American Medical Colleges, affinity groups, and other partner groups that you might be interested in that do faculty development. And then scholarship, we have a link on tons of scholarship around faculty affairs and faculty development, so you could check that out as well. And then we have a blog, and there's, there's places to contact us on the website as well. So facultyfactory.org, you can um, send an email directly through the website. We also have a Faculty Factory Twitter channel. You might want to join us there. And then we have two free ebooks. We're working on the third, spoiler alert, but two free ebooks you can send to all your colleagues, friends, faculty members, learners, trainees. One is called the Snippets for Success. That's all of you around the country who shared your tips and tricks for being successful in academic medicine. That's a free ebook sitting there waiting to be downloaded. As well as, again, during COVID, we did habits and hacks from faculty members here in Hopkins. They shared their wisdom around how they built their careers, how they overcame certain hurdles and challenges. 
that's another ebook you can take a look at and share with friends. So thank you again for listening to the Faculty Factory podcast, for being a part of our community. Will you please tell someone today about the Faculty Factory podcast? These Faculty Factory efforts are supported by the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine and our wonderful Vice Dean for Faculty, Dr. Maria Oliva Hemker, and you, our loyal patrons who share our passion around the world for faculty career and professional development. Thanks, everybody. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory Podcast, everybody. It's Kim Skorupski, and I'm looking at Stuart Ray. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Kim. Well, thanks so much for being on the Faculty Factory Podcast, Stuart. You are um, a unique guest in that when I, of course, learn more about you, every time I see you on these research panels and our speed reviews, specific game speed review sessions and through the data trust, learning more and more about you, I invited you to come here and you were like, well, Kim, I don't really don't know what I could talk about or what I could share because you have this imposter syndrome yourself. And it's so hysterical because, folks... Stuart Campbell Ray is, if you go to Wikipedia, Google Dr. Stuart Ray at Hopkins, it says, is an American physician. And he is, uh, as he just shared with me, back in, it's, it's a funny story. So I just want a real quick diversion. He said that he was asked back in 91, do you know anything about computers or using computers to do stuff when, with patients? And I hear you write code. Uh, Stuart was one of the only doctors who knows how to write code. So he's like, yeah, let's get these computers involved in medicine and kind of figuring out orders and how to put data into, into the hospital system. So he goes way back with, with data as writing code in the 90s. But all right, I'm, I'm going too far afield. But Dr. Ray is chair of medicine for data integrity in analytics. He's a professor of medicine and oncology, the assistant dean for research, steeped in the Johns Hopkins Medicine Data Trust Council on the diversity council as well, I should mention. He's in the Department of Medicine, Division of Infectious Diseases as expertise in RNA viruses. He's just one of these, one of our dear colleagues this morning actually referred to him as the local data wizard. So, all that again, thank you, Stuart, for being here. And you have great topics to talk about. They're all kind of um, woven together in this really nice chunk of wisdom for us triaging competing demands and skill building and networking and how to grow our careers in academic medicine. So, why don't you take it away, Stuart? I'm going to try to shut my mouth and learn from you. Well, Kim, you know, it's it's hard to think about what lessons can be learned, but I can describe, you know, how some of this started. And as you said that, I realized that it kind of started when somebody uh, gave a mainframe computer to my high school in Nashville, Tennessee uh, in the 1970s, and it used punch cards uh, and COBOL as the language. And so, you know, I was starting to learn to write code in the 70s. And uh, so, you know, it was it was just fascinating to me that I could make something hard happen uh, with uh, a system like that and make it repeatable. And I think that kind of caught me. And I'm also the guy who reads the instructions manual. And so when my parents bought a personal computer uh, for my mom's, uh, bird, you know, nascent real estate uh, business when I was finishing high school, uh, my dad was a preacher uh, in the Presbyterian Church. So, you know, I, I came up with not a lot of uh, data-driven and zero experience in medicine, but what I did have was a curiosity about how machines work. And so, 
Um, I learned to program that computer. And then every lab I joined as I was coming through high school, trying to get into science, because uh, I found that fascinating, um, they found out that I wrote software. And so then I'd end up writing software programs. And so, you know, I could uh, digress if you want at some point. But, you know, my first three major publications were really because I wrote software in the lab where I was doing some other stuff. So I would do the biology stuff <laughs> too, but then the software was really what caught. Uh, and so, uh, as I got through medical training as a resident and uh, my fellowship and chief residency, it was the software that really differentiated me. And so what I learned from that was that when I got engaged in a project and went deep on the skills, uh, not only did that make that project better, but I got to keep the skills. And so the skills are what made me valuable to others as I met uh, more and more scientists. That is such a nice insight. And I like that. Can you tell us more about the skills? So I'm envisioning little Stuart writing code for, for the first computer and all, you know, geeking out on that. It reminded me when I first got computers, Apple, whatever, 2C, 3C back in 1982. And I remember being on the prime, the VAX mainframe at my college with dot matrix printouts that ran about 20 feet long because I had double entered data. And that was the way that you referenced that your data, I actually had the, the, the printouts, the whole length of the computer lab and was with a ruler making sure that I had entered the data correctly. So anyway, I, I share, I share your, your love nerding out with data, but what was the skill or what are the skills that you crossed between medicine and data pro computer programming how can you think of a couple that sparked well, that kind of pathway? so one of the sparks was uh, you know I'm an undergrad at Vanderbilt and my uh, lab PI who is a fruit fly researcher was excited because a Genbank was starting to get pretty big and B uh, he had just bought a computer that had a 20 megabyte hard drive and that meant that we could put all of GenBank on one hard drive at one time. He'd never had, he'd always had to swap floppy disks out to look mm. at pieces of GenBank. So he asked me if I could write a program that could look through all of GenBank and find all the start codons for all the genes in GenBank. So we wrote a letter to GenBank and they sent us back a binder with 47 five and a quarter inch floppy disks. And uh, we were able to stick those in the floppy drive. And I sat there for hours sticking all those in and copying all 720K of data on these double-sided floppy disks onto the computer. And so then we had all of GenBank. And so I wrote a 20,000-line computer program to find all the start codons and then look at all the interactions around the start codon. And we revised the COSAC sequence, which was kind of a big deal at the time. That paper remains one of my most highly cited publications. Uh, it, it took seven rounds of, of review. It was a, 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 a lot of work, but it was a great experience. And two authors, me and that PI. Um, so that got me into the genetics, which I really never knew anything about. And I, you know, I'll say I never had a formal course in genetics per se, and I had one quarter of computer programming at Caltech as a freshman. So I really had very little... Uh, formal training, but that intersection was unusual. And so then when I got to my next lab, they found out that I knew something about genetic and analysis and could write software. And so, you know, that uh, led eventually to my writing a program called Simplot that looks for recombination and viruses. And so that program uh, was written to find recombinant strains in the first six genomes uh, sequenced that are, we did in our lab from India. 
uh, from of HIV. And we found that one of them was a swap and I didn't have software. There's no existing software I could use. And so I wrote a program to find that recombination breakpoint. And that program has been used in more than 2,500 publications. Uh, I never thought it would be like that. So the first three papers in early 2020 describing the SARS-CoV-2 genome, the COVID-19 genome, used my software in Nature and Lancet. And, and it's, it's funny because I haven't really touched that code since 2005, but people still use the software. And so that that kind of got me some credibility in the space of genetics and uh, computational biology, even though I didn't really earn that uh, in a formal way. Um, and and so as I've gone along, I've always looked for those. Uh, you know, it's it funny when I was a kid. There's a, a Jacques Cousteau special mm-hmm. where people are swimming over the seafloor, and he said, at least I recall him saying. Uh, that when you see a straight line in nature, you know, that's probably action of of humans or some interesting natural process. And so what I talk about when I look at what I've done with sequence analysis and stuff like that is really looking for straight lines in nature. What is the pattern in what looks like a random sea of information that has some meaning? Uh, And so, you know, looking for meaning uh, in uh, what looks like noise is an exciting thing to me uh, and is an opportunity that I think a lot of people uh, can engage in. So when I talk to people in resource limited settings about research opportunities, one of the things I point out is that GenBank is big and and real and there's a lot of free software and the intersection of software and programming tools with genetic data is an amazing opportunity to make biological insights that can be novel. And first of all, brilliant. I mean, I just feel like saying, doi, I don't even barely know how to talk to you. But necessity is the mother of all invention. I can't help but think of this, that in both of those examples you gave of writing code and GenBank and the floppy disk, and again, you took me right back to, for my dissertation, I used the N. Haynes data, the National Health and Nutrition every day, and I got these three and a half inch hard disks. There were like 16 of them, and I had to chuck those things in there, but- I wasn't writing the code. I was analyzing all the data, but I was so excited by that. But again, back to what you talked about is both those examples were your writing the code because it was necessary. So there was a need for it that then it's like the the step one of doing something else. Like you had to, to build, to bake the cake, you have to go shop and get the ingredients and put the mach- build the machine to actually bake the cake. So it's it's just a, to me a way of thinking that there's so much need out there, and I'm wondering how many other times in the course of our lives, and all the clinicians and the scientists out there go, if I only had this, then that would make this much easier, or I want to do that, but I can't do that because I have to do this first. Yes. So you just gave us but- two examples of the two first things that had to happen. That's but also the near miss was that if I had just written the program to do the analysis of breakpoints in HIV and stopped there, that would have been a nice publication, but probably wouldn't have enabled others uh, to do more with the software. But somebody saw that and said, you know, could you polish that up and make it so I can use that software too? Well, then I had to write a nice user interface around it. And so I spent a lot of nights and weekends. Uh, when I was doing other things, uh, making the program friendly so that it could handle any known uh, sequence format. Because um, there's FASTA and there's GenBank and there's 
uh, a ton of other uh, sequence formats that people might have. And I knew that users would say, hey, can you make it convert these to this? So I found some open source code uh, and uh, by Don Gilbert and attributed him with this. And so I modified that so that I could pull in any data format that was known at the time. Uh, and I also wrote the memory models so that it could handle things as large as human chromosomes. And so uh, it used all available memory space uh, without breaking too much because you don't want to mess up. And then I also handled uh, number formatting for Europe and other uh, places because uh, there, you know, some places they use a period for the decimal oh. separator, some use a comma, and then they use the period for the thousand separator. And then in India, they use lock and other uh, number formats. And so I needed to handle all those. And so I, I sort of uh, tried to handle all those localizations and also some language localization so that it would be usable in resource limited settings where they might have other languages. It helped me that my first few projects were in Egypt and India and other places so that I was more aware of the differences in use of language and numbers and, uh, and understanding. So I think that also helped at scale. Um, and and that was so the recipe example you were talking about. It's one thing to bake something wonderful; it's another to share a recipe that others can use. Mm -hmm. And so I I think part of my motivation was I love seeing the tools used elsewhere, and uh, that and also not not making a barrier. So I didn't charge anything for it, which drove some people at Hopkins a little crazy at first because I didn't you know patent or try to restrict its use. And I gave it away, uh, which has been kind of a hassle for me sometimes because there's no resource to do that. I never got a grant for the software. I've just distributed it on my own time. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, the nice thing is I meet people and they're like, wait, are you the one who wrote Simplot? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of <laughs> nice because I know, you know, early, late in 2019 and early 2020, people in China were writing me for help with their software to analyze this coronavirus sequence. And that was uh, what turned out to be SARS-CoV-2. And that was kind of nice to be sort of seeing that stuff. I was trading emails with people in Iran in the toughest times of our relationship with Iran. And, you know, I've I've uh, interacted with people in Cameroon and South Africa who've used my software. So that part is uh, uh, heartwarming uh, and sort of gives me more energy to do this stuff. So you're, you're talking about, I'm trying to think about, other faculty, people who are li listening to us right now and think, well, this is good for him. I, I'm not, I'm no um, data programming genius. I'm, I don't know anything about, you know, RNA or I'm not even a basic scientist. How could this apply to me? And you're making me think of, of course, just when we come up with any methodology or any tool or any technique, if mm -hmm. you're doing surgeries that, that you figure out a way to optimize a thing and then by using in our, our space of peer review publication and disseminating that information, we can say, oh, that I don't have that same disease outcome or that same patient population or that same, you know, fill in the blank practice, but I can take that methodology and reproduce it um, over here with a couple tweaks, like you described, couple changing a little couple lines of code, if you will, and you know, parentheses, to now all of a sudden. It's it's optimizing what I'm doing in my space. So, well, you know, and I think this partly comes down to the reality that all of us are going to get pigeonholed. So you need uh -huh. to choose your pigeonhole. So you need to be able to articulate what it is you do. So for me, it was developing a skill. And so, you know, my mentor for much of my career, I've had many wonderful mentors, but one of them was David Thomas. 
Uh, and I don't, I hope, you know, Dave Thomas, uh, he's one of the most amazing people I've ever interacted with, but, you know, one of the things he would do is press me to articulate what it was that was my shtick. What, what, what am I going to contribute, uh, both to help me focus on the things that have value, uh, that, that other people will value and also to be able to articulate that well enough that people, uh, will be, uh, putting me into a pigeonhole in which I'm comfortable because it's going to be the thing you wear, uh, when you're connecting. So when I'd go to a, a meeting and he would introduce me, I would watch him sort of process how to communicate my skill set to this person that he thinks could be valuable to me uh, at a future time. So they need to know how to think about me. And obviously, every one of us can be described in many ways, but you need to choose your pigeonhole. Okay, so choosing our pigeonhole, and and you just said something Another thing interesting to be, you watched or paid attention to how he introduced you to other people. That's true. And learned because I think some and, and learned how to um how to describe you, how to describe your gifts and your talents and how and what your unique contribution to science is. Because I think what I'm what I'm hearing or how what I'm thinking now is. Some faculty members, you know, we we can be very focused because we're taught almost like the the sands in the hourglass. When we first start off, we're broad and general, and then we are we must focus and get that niche and be have national and international recognition impact in the niche. And then as we maybe broaden out uh, toward later career and other areas to go back out again. Um, but now you're making me think that sometimes we make an error. We can make an error in pigeonholing ourselves by saying this is my thing this is my focus and then that uh, that misses opportunities because we are so finite and have such firm opaque bookends around what we do that we fail to see connections um and networking opportunities that we can kind of bleed through there and make impact and learn as you said have these transferable skills that if i yeah, it's important to have a disease entity or a methodology or a tool or technique or or certain gift. And then seeing how can you apply that more broadly, all of a sudden opens up. Well, my yeah, my dad once said something to me that was very meaningful, that vocation, uh, Frederick Beekner said that vocation is when you find the intersection between your passion and the world's great need. Uh, so you, you, your passion is the intersection of sort of your skills and your joy. What is it that you uh, can do and also enjoy doing to the point that you'll develop it well? And then where's the world's great need? And in order to find your intersection with opportunity, you really need to say where that interface is. What is the what is the handle that someone can grab uh, to marshal your skill set and passion with the need that they have? And so I think that's a big part of uh, career building is finding that handle, drawing a circle around it and saying, this is where you can hold, grab onto me and I will run along with you. So Stuart, help help us um, think about how many handles one should have and where, you know, where is that delicate balance between having enough focus if I'm an early career faculty member to get me promoted and to, to plant my flag in the field that I'm the person doing this, this is my space, while not just having that one handle, because now yes. I'm thinking of all how technology has changed and now artificial intelligence could be like 
we're hearing getting rid of blasting away a whole bunch of other jobs, whole other sectors. We don't want to have that one handle that all of a sudden gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and all of a sudden that our handle is irrelevant. So how and then you don't want to have a hundred handles because then you're right. a mile wide and an inch deep. So how do you where do you see that sweet spot? Well, you know, so looking at me now, I look to some like a jack of all trades, uh, and I would say sort of master of none. But but I think that you know early on I was I was a master of a few, and and so you know when I started, you know that it was said like I kind of wanted to be a triple threat. I wanted to be a researcher who's also a clinician and teacher, and and I was told that that was sort of a thing of the past. So don't try to be the triple threat. And I think part of it is that none of us starts out as a triple threat. Uh, that you need to have something that makes you valuable enough to an institution to stay. And so I needed to work on my one thing at a time. So, you know, as a resident, as a fellow, and, and I was lucky enough to be uh, an assistant chief of service here, sort of a chief resident, I developed my clinical skills. And I wanted to make sure that I was a clinician that would be valued so that I'd have a role in the clinical service. And so, you know, for that work, uh, my research was irrelevant. And what I needed to be was a very good clinician, um, or the best clinician I could be. And so I tried to develop that skill. And the nice thing is you get to keep what you learn. And so once uh, I had good clinical skills, as long as I maintained that, uh, I could be a useful clinician. And then, you know, I teaching was going to wait, uh, but I needed to be a researcher if I wanted to get NIH funding and, and other funding. And so I made sure that I was valuable to teams by having the programming and other data analysis chops to be useful in projects and that I tried to meet guide, uh, goals and timelines, uh, you know, get papers done. I'm not a great completer. And so it, it took some help from people around me to make sure that I got those things done uh, and actually wrote, you know, the empty page is hard for all of us, but some of us it's harder than others. And so, you know, trying to be valuable from one project to another over time, developing uh, some uh, insights and some experiences so that I could add value to projects. Uh, and then, you know, you, as you do that, uh, with each project, you build a little bit of credibility in a given area and then uh, find, uh, you know, more and more of those handles that might be useful to people. But I think it is a challenge early on to realize that we are uh, built uh, one step at a time as experts, uh, initially narrow and eventually building out a, a tool set. And you said something, again, really valuable for those of us, I mean, you're very honest and humble in saying, I'm not a great completer. I don't, I'm not really good at closing the job. And so that self-awareness tells me, because you are so, so successful, is that you've somehow figured out how to um, well, mitigate that challenge you have. And how, how, did, how did you do that? Or how, what is um, that, that recognition of self? And what did you do purposely to make sure that that was not going to stand in your way? Well, I think uh, perhaps my greatest blessing was encountering mentors who uh, helped me recognize these things. But also, I, I think I, I had to listen. So I, I had to hear uh, that I have, uh, you know, challenges and then ask for help in figuring out how to manage those. And so one of those was building artificial deadlines. I'm a big user of my calendar and reminders 
uh, so that if I think I need to do something, I don't figure that I'm going to remember that. I actually put it somewhere. The other thing I learned in college was when I I, I took a crazy semester where I took 21 hours uh, at at Vanderbilt as a as a senior, which is a crazy amount. I I wanted to do modern American novel. I wanted to take a sculpture class, and I needed to complete at the last minute requirements for pre med. And so I took a crazy schedule, and I couldn't sleep. Uh, some evenings. And then I realized what I need to do is keep a piece of paper by the bed. And when I thought of something I needed to do, I rolled over and wrote it out. So I dumped it. It was kind of like the pensieve in Harry Potter. Uh, I, I often thought about that when I saw the pensieve, uh, Dumbledore's pensieve. So I wanted to dump the worries onto the page. Uh, and then every day I reprioritized my list. So I made a list of, of bullets that I needed to deal with. And I reprioritized that on a daily basis when I had a really heavy load. That helped me a great deal. And in the same way, I've learned that I need to depend on others uh, for uh, timelines and deliverables and then try to listen. I will say that I'm not uh, by any means perfect at that, but I've learned that I need that external uh, reference point and to listen to those around me when uh, I'm trying to get something done. So that that is so valuable, listening to others, inviting other others to this process of being honest and open. That's what I love about you and good leaders, that they have that integrity, the authenticity to say, I'm not good at this, and, and say it. And I, I'm working on it. I, I try to do, I make lists. This is what I try to do. And I'm also inviting you. I'd love for you to be a part of my team because I see you have that. And yes. um, and this is what why you're so valuable to us and this team is because no one closes a job like you. No That's one right. pays attention to detail like you. And we need you. And so we need everybody, um, the, the big thinkers, the attention to detail. We need the thinkers. We need the feelers. We yes. need the closer. We need the person uncovering every rock and making sure we're not missing things in an attempt to close a job. So we need all of those. But I also have to set a tone that says, please tell me when I'm off track. Uh, so I, you know, if, if you're too intimidating and, you know, I'm, I'm pretty tall. So I, I, I think that can have an intimidating effect and, and other things. So I have to make sure that I'm intentional about saying, please tell me when we're off track. Uh, mm -hmm. And, and I, and I also have great friends like you, Kuminabi and others who are not uh, reluctant to tell me when I'm uh, off track. So that, that helps me too. Yeah. That, I, I also invite my friends to please help me stop talking so much because I tend to over explain because I, <laughs> my brain is still formulating the, the concepts and the ideas so I feel like I'm not being clear. So I've given them all I'm like, please just put put the hand up. Give me the hand. Like, Kim, we got it. We got it. Yeah. You don't have to keep going to three different. And that helps me because I always I want to communicate so clearly. And I'm I so want to understand and to be understood that my instinct is to keep going, going, going. I just need friends that go, no, we got you. Gotcha. Clear. And I love to explore solution space. But uh, Toby Gordon and others have helped me remember that there's a parking lot. So some of my ideas end up in the parking lot and, you know, that it keeps us on track. It's that's great, but it's over in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. I live in the yeah. parking lot sometimes. Perfect. That's a great meeting. Uh, there's a whole acronym around meeting hygiene. It's called yes. Car CARPA, like the, the yes. yeah, the code of conduct, the agenda, the something, I can't remember what the R is and parking lot is a P. Yes. But, uh, so there's a, that's part I love that to like we're not going to ignore it but we'll put it there. Yeah. But Stuart, you you had um 
earlier, you talked about the connecting and networking and, and finding talent. Could you talk a little a little bit about that as you, you know, have grown your career and how you mentor others to connect and network and build their talent pool and, and grow their communities? Sure. There, there are people who build big programs and and continue to, to, to lead those. I don't really identify myself as being one of those people. So I, I'm not somebody who has a huge uh, team that I directly manage all the time. But what I have uh, been blessed with is uh, meeting uh, mentees who are people who do complete tasks and love to lead big programs. And so, you know, some of the people that I've co-mentored, uh, Andrea Cox, who's now our director of the MD-PhD program and has a great research program, Justin Bailey, uh, some others like this are really heavily funded uh, researchers who have big programs. They have uh, continued to complete on tasks that I worked with them uh, when they were uh, training. And so, you know, one of the things I've looked for in opportunity is, is talented people with a lot of passion and skills that uh, complement mine. And they have uh, come gone on to be very successful. And I just watch from the sidelines and, and consult. I'm sort of the grandparent who, you know, comes up and says how cute the kids are and says that di- diaper needs to be changed. And then I have the luxury of walking away. Way, uh, and they carry the water. So, you know, that's that's been my pattern and uh, it's been comfortable for me, but it means that I don't have a big program that I oversee. And, and, and talk to us about the over over the years, how have you been able to um, identify that talent? And how, what is the, the thing that if faculty are listening to us right now going, you know, how can I get that thing or find that thing and in my team that I'm trying to build, like what what have you noticed about maybe you were right about had good instincts about picking people or trainees or colleagues? What are, what are the, some insights you have about um, talent and well, surrounding yourself with the people? So I'm I'm tenacious about um, rigor. So when, when we use terms, I like to use them carefully. And, uh, you know, part of it is when we talk about uh, planning a research project, and we're going to have some deliverables or some milestones that I want to be very clear about what those milestones are and how they're composed so that we know when we meet success and failure. Um, and uh, also so that we can marshal resource if, if if there's a key element that we're missing, that we find the collaborator who can fit fill that gap. Uh, but we have to precisely define what the task is and and what the gap is. Uh, so that we can find those folks. And, you know, it's it's amazing at Hopkins uh, for me. One of the reasons I've been here for 33 years uh, in June or whatever has been that, uh, you know, it's it you surround yourself with people who are smarter than you, more talented than you in areas uh, where you have a gap. And so, uh, and they're also really friendly about this. We had an RNA folding question and, you know, I look around and Rachel Green, uh, this, you know, Howard Hughes investigator who does RNA uh, structure is upstairs and we go and talk to her. I had a, a trainee who was interested in hypoxia effects on, on something. And I said, well, you know, Greg Semenza is, uh, you know, in the other building. Let's go meet with him. And they're kind of like, whoa. And, and you know, it's it's this great place where we can find depth and uh, and then uh, figure out what we need. So I think, you know, be, being rigorous about stating the problem and the, and the task and then spidering into the literature to find uh, how things really work and where the gaps are. Um, there's opportunity all around us and, and great collaborators all around us. But uh, I think it's uh, being careful about stating the question and then uh, figuring out where our gaps are. 
being focused, spidering. I like that term, spidering in. And I think also having the courage because you clearly have confidence. You 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 know what you you know what you want to do. You are not shy about saying, I'm gonna go see Greg. I'm gonna just go talk to Rachel. And I and I know that there are faculty members, early career faculty members, who maybe are more introverted, who don't know who's who, but you're you're showing, you're giving an example of what good mentorship is. And if you don't have the courage to do that, you know, you can garner the support of peers and your mentors in your division department to do the introductions to kind of smooth out that hurdle if that if that um, concerns you, right? Right. But I think that the careful part of this is making sure you don't waste people's time. And that's not on the initial meeting. So you try to choose a time slot like 30 minutes and let it grow if they want to keep it growing. But but don't assume that they have an hour for you. Uh, so you go in for a 30 minute uh, conversation to see whether there's traction there. And then, you know, do some homework so you don't go in cold. Uh, but then also don't waste their time. If you're going to have a second meeting, come back having done some work. Uh, so that they have a sense of progress. And I think if they see a delta between the first and the second meeting, it's rewarding for them. And so trying to figure out where their joy is in these interactions. And if it's growth in the project, then bringing them something uh, that's rewarding. Um, I, you know, I think the danger in uh, knocking on doors is just uh, that you're not respectful of their time and their demands and also of their joys. And if if they love hearing, uh, you know, how things have moved, then come back with some data, come back with something that tells them that the first meeting was valuable to them. Great. Yes, Stuart, you're, you're so right. There's nothing more frustrating for a mentor than a mentee coming back and say, I didn't get around to doing that, or I forgot about that. And I'll sit there and go, well, I saw you write it down. I mean, you, you took, you remember you writing that down, we talked about that. And so you really, um, or, or the broad, we try to, when we teach about how to be a good mentee and a good mentor, another kiss of death is to say, hey, can you, you know, take a look at this and send, send a big email, six paragraph long emails or big um an attachment say take a look at this let me know what you think it's just too broad versus the specificity of you know looking at this paragraph check me for science versus check me for punctuation spelling and grammar or um i just want to talk about one thing versus maybe a different conversation of walk and talk would be let's talk about life in general but you're right that being focused intentional and then respectful and then actually doing something will demonstrate that this is somebody who um, will be a joy to work with. Because it's one thing to work with smart people, but you also want to work with people who are uh, a pleasure to be around and, and are, make our lives even you know more interesting and more fun. Oh, gosh, you said something earlier I wanted to kind of circle back to. Um, oh, so the treat. So I just kind of want to wrap sort of wrap up here. You're doing obviously so much, so many responsibilities, so many passions and things you love and uh, you you hit on so many circuits here. How do you triage all these your demands, the competing demands? You you made you made mention of the listing, and so I can imagine you you're really uh, good with sticking to the schedule and a list and keeping yourself accountable. But how um, any insight for other people who maybe aren't as skilled at that, or how can you help them learn how to prioritize and and reconfigure um, responsibilities when it's needed? 
well, I'll say that my intention around the list is because I'm not good <laughs> at keeping to the program. So, you know, I have to uh, look at those and and I and I also give people permission to remind me if I slip because I know that I can uh, let things slip. But I, I do think that, uh, you know, it's important to pay attention to the thing that is not urgent but important. And I think you know, I have a tendency to do the urgent but unimportant. And I think we all know about that quad, that quad chart and uh, making sure that, you know, I, I live in this in the quadrant of the important and, and not urgent. And I and I I have to work toward that. So I think um, understanding what's important, checking in with with mentors or others who can give you a sense for what's important, telling folks who are bugging you about the urgent but unimportant that I'm sorry, but I may not be able to get that. And so, you know, learning to say no to enough stuff uh, is a hard task uh, for me because I like saying yes. Um, and, you know, when when you mentioned uh, one of our colleagues saying that I'm kind of a wizard, part of that is my lesion of saying yes to tasks uh, because I like saving other people uh, time on repetitive tasks through automation. So, so I guess um, I have to make joy for the uh, make time for the things that give me joy uh, because they charge my batteries. But I also have to make time for the things that are important because they keep the lights on. And uh, figuring out that balance is hard. Um, and uh, I guess I've been uh, careful to find joy in the things that keep the lights on. Um, and you know, my place in this organization. Uh, is probably you know where I find uh, joy in those those mundane tasks uh, that will sustain a career. Those you know the the things that pay the bills uh, have to be served, but I you know the joy is is the thing that keeps us going every day. And obviously, one of the things that makes joy is is you know taking care of the people you love. Uh, finally, that I think one of the insights that I learned that I've tried to share is that. Uh, Try not to love your institution because your institution will never love you back. Uh, so love the things that can love you back. And and I don't think those involve sports teams or institutions, but I do care <laughs> about my colleagues and my family. And so I try to take care of them. Oh, Stuart Ray, you are, you are wonderful. What a gift to us, to the world, to the podcast. Thank you so much. I knew you'd be blown away by this. I am. I have so many quotes here. I, I want to leave you with a couple that Dr. Stuart Ray said to us. Um, he tries to look for the straight lines in nature and then looking for meaning in what looks like noise. So trying to find a way forward through noise and trying to identify the connectivity, I think is what drives a lot of us as scientists and, and leaders. Choose your own pigeonhole and then this nice intersection, find that intersection that that uh, Stuart's dad told him was uh, the intersection between your passion and the world's great need that you attributed to somebody else. But we, we can't remember. But it was Richard Beekner, yes, a okay. philosopher. Yeah, love it, love it. I know I've heard that before. And I and I and I love the also what you said. You get to keep what you learn. So another reminder that when you learn skills, um, you get to keep that. Um, we'll never lose that. So there's no 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 harm in the skill building. Gosh, Stuart Ray, week I could talk to you again and again and again, longer, longer, longer. I'm I'm so so grateful for your time here, and thank you for everything you do for us. And thanks so much for being on the Faculty Factory podcast. Thank you, Kim. It was a pleasure talking to you.
Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.